This is Macro Horizons, Episode 39, Manufacturing Matters, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of October 7th. As the air becomes crisp and apple picking replaces beach vacations, at least we can take solace in abandoning our ketogenic aspirations. For now. views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. It's been a fascinating week in the Treasury market, which isn't something that we can say all that often, even if we do. Our biggest takeaway was the continued deterioration of the manufacturing sector via the weakest ISM print since June 2009. Now, we all know that the story surrounding the manufacturing sector in the U.S. really stems from the trade war and all of the ongoing uncertainties linked to the administration's attempt to recast how the U.S. behaves in terms of international trade. Not a new story, but as sentiment continues to push lower, it is relevant, particularly when we start to use 2009 as a reference point. Recall that was a moment in which there was a great deal of negative economic sentiment in the market. It's also useful to keep in mind that the ISM manufacturing data is a survey, so it is soft data rather than hard data, but that isn't to suggest that it should be completely dismissed. Now, granted, ISM will dip below 50 at times that the U.S. economy doesn't ultimately spiral into a deep recession. However, as an indication of the outlook of the goods producing sector, it is worth keeping an eye on. More importantly, our primary concern is that the dimmer outlook reflected in this data ultimately translates through in a more durable way to a contraction in hiring, to a contraction in spending. We've already started to see a material slowdown in CapEx that has actually been weighing on real growth in the U.S. Now, part of that is going to be a function of the tax reforms, which brought forward some replacement and some investment spending on the corporate side. Nonetheless, the trajectory that's in place is going to make it that much more difficult for the consumption side of the economy to continue pushing real GDP in a positive direction for the foreseeable future. In terms of the market, the 10-year yield is still holding to a definable downward sloping channel. Now, when we think about what this implies for the balance of the year, we're more concerned about defining the range rather than identifying the inflection point in which we'll see 10-year yields break to 225. 
we ultimately think that we will see record low 10-year yields. So that simply means reaching 132. However, we anticipate that will be a 2020 story rather than a Q4 2019 event. Domestic politics, the trade war, ongoing geopolitical uncertainties are important backdrops in the treasury market at the moment. And we have seen some of these concerns continue to weigh on risk assets, most notably domestic equities. Recall that it was the spike in equity volatility in 2018 that ultimately led to tighter financial conditions and a pivot from the FOMC when they ended their normalization campaign and ultimately needed to shift to a point of cutting rates. Whether it's ultimately defined as 50 or 75 basis points worth of aggregate cuts remains to be seen. We continue to err on the side of 75, at least for the time being. We'll be keeping an eye on the lower bound of the yield range, and we'll be paying special attention to the potential re-steepening of the 2s, 10s yield curve with an attempt at 12 basis points and momentum suggesting that there might be still more room to run, this is undoubtedly a space that we'll be watching in the week ahead. So you two, the past few weeks, we've been very focused on the yield range, volatility and repo markets, really things that are relevant in the short to medium term. But we're now in Q4, so I think it's a good chance to discuss how we expect it all ultimately plays out in 2020. It certainly is the time of the year when people start to go out with forward forecasts for the economy in the year ahead, for the rates market, for what it all means in terms of monetary policy. And so to your point, it does make sense to give this a little bit of thought. From my perspective, I still remain cautious that the U.S. economy could easily slip into a technical recession in 2020. Now, that's not going to be a crisis-style economic meltdown, but rather two quarters where real GDP simply contracts a modest amount. The open question in my mind is, has the Fed been proactive enough to prevent such a modest recession, or has the damage that's been done to corporate confidence been so severe that there's very little that the Fed can do about it? Part of this is the ongoing debate about whether monetary policy can do anything at this point in the cycle. But the other part of it, and it's very meaningful, is was the Fed quick enough to respond? And are the early signs of stress, both in the manufacturing sector, as well as other quarters of the economy, more of a precursor of things worse to come? It's a bit of a tough counterfactual. So we're still very much with the line of thinking of 75 basis points of cumulative cuts this time around. Imagine if the Fed didn't do that. And what I mean by this is, imagine they stopped hiking in March 2018. And then they also said, we're going to stop running off the balance sheet because we're worried about reserve scarcity. People would have lost their minds if the Fed stopped cutting three months after a massive tax cut, right? So it's one of those, yes, they probably went too far with hindsight, but had they actually just stopped where they're going to end 2019, people would have been crying bloody murder that this is the worst monetary policy error ever committed. 
with hindsight may be true, but nearly impossible to see at the time. And still, people are crying bloody murder that this is the worst possible monetary policy error ever committed. So the fact that the ongoing criticisms of the Fed persists, I think, is telling, although one would like to hope that it isn't going to actually have a material impact on the Fed's approach to monetary policy in the year ahead. So you mean the FOMC isn't a constant subscriber to Macro Horizons? No, I think they are. Well, they at least have a Twitter feed. That's all useful for a framework in thinking about the Fed, but what about how it plays out in the market? Well, we continue to see a relatively definable range, particularly in 10 and 30-year yields. What we have historically seen is that 10s tend to trade in a range between 100 and 125 basis points. There will be moments in which reflationary optimism push yields to the upper end of the range, and then a solid flight to quality and global economic recessionary fears drag yields lower. The big unknown from my perspective, is what is that range in 2020? At the moment, it appears that the market is finding an equilibrium point somewhere in that 150 to 175 range, which leaves open the possibility that 10-year yields trade with a zero handle in 2020, setting new record lows, very consistent with how I see the world playing out, also very consistent with the idea that we'll most likely bring in a fair amount of optimism into the new year. And as the economic realities become apparent, we'll see a continued drift lower in rates, especially if we find the Fed once again active on the cutting front. The other side of that coin is how long, if at all, can 10-year yields sustainably trade above 2% or 2 and a quarter. What we have witnessed over the course of the last 18 months is that the backup in 10-year yields that trigger wobbles in the equity market has become more and more shallow as time has progressed. In Q4 2018, it was 325 then in the beginning of 2019, it was 260. And most recently, it was the high 180s, low 190s. Does that mean that any time tins get close to a two-handle, the equity market is going to sell off, equity volatility spike, and we see monetary policy officials get nervous? My baseline assumption is yes, But that doesn't mean that there won't be moments where the economic data suggests that we have averted a more significant downturn in growth. So that's all well and good, but what's your point estimate for tens at the end of 2020 to the tenth of a basis point? Yes. And more importantly, it's all going to play out in the shape of the curve. I totally agree. There's really only one way for rates to go. And that's in the opposite direction of prices. All joking aside, however, the prospects for the Fed to be more aggressive in 2020 will cap how far two-year yields are able to back up. We're still looking for that cyclical re-steepening of the curve, although admittedly the argument has grown somewhat long in the tooth, as it were, especially given what's going on with the rest of the world. If we think about the German rate complex, if we think about what is going on in Japan, some of the Obvious limits of monetary policy have become evident. Rates are very low. There is structural demand for fixed income instruments, especially as long as the dollar maintains its role as reserve currency, which frankly, I don't see being challenged in any material way for a very long time. 
with twos in particular, it'll be interesting to watch in 2020 because, you know, say the Fed executes their 75 basis point cumulative, Fed funds is trading about 165, so 15 basis points above the bottom of the target range, add in another 15 for Treasury OIS for fun, and now you're at 180. That's ballpark where I'd expect to twos to trade if there's a perfectly symmetric outlook, both in terms of the rate path and macroeconomy. So what will be fascinating to watch is whether the Fed's able to make it symmetric, whether there will be a biased outlook towards additional cuts to come, or echoing the 1990s, will pivot back towards the possibility of hikes after the mid-cycle adjustment. And if we do pivot back to the possibility of hikes, how does that play out in the shape of the curve? I'd expect that we're back up against the inversion, particularly in twos, tens, three-month bills versus tens as well, and it will simply be deeper than we have seen thus far in the cycle. It's almost reminiscent of that Q4 2018 period. At the time, we had said the Fed's going to hike rates until something breaks. Well, if they go back to a rate hike cycle, that framework could be leaned on again, and it also would correspond to a deeper and deeper inversion, as you put it. And that would also be somewhat at odds with the Fed's current campaign to shift the way in which the market perceives they will be addressing inflation going forward. The efforts to take a more symmetric approach, I think, are very telling. As we've noted in the past, the willingness to cut rates even as core inflation has accelerated to its highest level since the crisis is a notable shift, if nothing else. One thing all three of us are comfortable asserting is that 2020 will not be the year the trade war ends, at least to start. After all, there was a period of calm on the trade war front, but that by no means suggests that tariffs are behind us. And the latest announced taxes will kick in in December, but I don't think any of us expect that that will be the last we hear from Tariff Man. And thinking of the issue from the perspective of Beijing, there's a pretty strong incentive to wait and see how the presidential election plays out before necessarily committing to anything. And the market, I think, is reading it that way as well. Any deal at this point is simply going to be window dressing and not have the same impact on the rates market as one would have anticipated if a deal were reached at the end of 2018, for example. The other point, just following up on that notion about tariffs, is we have actually only started to see some of the most recent round of tariffs manifest itself in the economic data. Most notably, core inflation will continue to be vulnerable to some of these pressures. Now, in terms of monetary policy, this is not the organic demand-side inflation that the Fed would want to see. And in fact, it more closely represents what happens when we see a spike in gasoline prices, i.e. a tax on consumption and a tax on consumption that is occurring at a point where holiday spending figures are going to be watched particularly closely. And more generally, outside of just 2020, there's been significant ramifications for the global economic order from this entire episode. Uncertainty around trade agreements has, for better or worse, now become the name of the game. And while stable multilateral trade agreements were once taken as given, I think this administration has ensured that that will no longer be the case, which means that even if explicit tariffs are not as severe as they were in 2019, the possibility of them could still weigh on business investment 
and all that implies for the corporate sector. What if the administration starts cutting tariffs? So in some ways, there's been an element of that. Certain things are exempted from tariffs after a formal process. But politically, and at least from a negotiating strategy, it's one thing to push back tariff implementation. It's one thing to have one-off exemptions. Just from a messaging standpoint, it's an entirely different thing. And it's also worth keeping in mind that the tariffs are relatively focused, right? If you're a global supply chain manager, you can shift production into other East Asian countries, India, potentially even Africa at some point. That's probably further down the road. But the concept that if it's not China, it must be the U.S., I think is extremely misleading. Well, with that context, then, how much incentive would there be for production to be increased, as you point out, in different regions? For example, different parts of Southeast Asia have been struggling to meet some of the production demands, at least early. So that does imply that there would need to be further investment in facilities, in infrastructure to really make those options viable. And that investment is actually a rational byproduct of the structural uncertainty as the trade front. If one believes that we're going to go back and forth across a variety of different trade renegotiations globally, it makes sense to then try to build infrastructure in a variety of different countries in order to diversify your options. You know, this is diversification 101. Production facilities aren't cheap, however. And so as a result, I would be more concerned that if we see that type of diversification, the costs associated with it need to come from somewhere. Do they come directly out of corporate profitability? Probably not. Do they come linked with additional borrowing on the corporate level? That seems to make a bit more sense, especially given how relatively narrow corporate spreads have been in recent years. That would be a remarkably ironic outcome if after the trade war, you see a pickup in corporate borrowing that funds infrastructure investment abroad, whereas the series of tax cuts led to a cash inflow to the corporate sector and went to buybacks. Why don't they just fund it in the repo market? What repo market? Well, looking to 2020, I can guarantee one of my New Year's resolutions is going to be talk about repo less. I'll sell that idea back to you shortly. Term or overnight? Uh, standing, please. Well, as I'm sitting down thinking about any ongoing repo facility. You know, we have the minutes in this coming week. And uh, as always, they're stale. But these in particular will be informative as to the committee's perspective on funding markets before they observed quarter end. At the end of the day, the modalities of any standing, sitting, ongoing repo facility are going to be calibrated partially based off of the experience with quarter end. We've seen the Fed be willing to commit north of $200 billion. And really, the conversation is going to move to two parts. One, they need to be in the market providing repo injections, or at least have the option to be in a much more consistent basis. What are the details of that? Who are the counterparties? Hopefully, in the September meeting, they discuss those kinds of things, and the minutes will provide some baseline. The other is they can't rely on these kind of overnight or even term operations going forward. They're going to need to talk about growing assets again. As we've talked about before, this isn't quantitative easing, but kind of returning to normal growth. One thing that we've been debating internally a lot is will they not only grow organically with reserves, but try to more aggressively rebuild a reserve buffer? 
Now, there are a couple different ways they could do that. One, a much more gradual pace. Another, which has been tossed around and is pretty intriguing, is buy a couple hundred billion of bills or so over the next couple quarters. It's a lot more aggressive of a pace, but kind of indicates that they might be trying to get ahead of the process. At the end of the day, the bill market is rather liquid, and the Fed has been underweight bills in their treasury holdings for years and years. So one, it seems like the market could handle it well. Two, it would get the Fed back to more of a neutral thing. And three, I think the other benefit is it's easier to communicate that this isn't quantitative easing if you're just buying bills. It's a little more difficult if you're suddenly upsizing the 30-year operation. And a significant holding of bills by SOMA does provide the Fed with a bit more flexibility than they had the last time they needed to do an operation twist or some type of near QE program to influence the market. But at the end of the day, we still have days and hours to the minutes. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have a few more fundamental inputs to help guide trading direction. The biggest one is obviously going to be the inflation series, with core CPI on Thursday being pivotal as we get a better sense of the degree to which tariffs have started to finally flow through to the core inflation metric, and more importantly, how the market responds if we do see yet another upside surprise in inflation. Frankly, we've been somewhat surprised to see a lack of re-steepening when we have seen upside inflationary surprises. This is simply an interpretation of the constraints on the Fed to be more aggressive in tightening, putting monetary policy officials in a position where they're forced into a policy error, as it were. The logic there being the Fed should cut more, Therefore, if they slow the process of cutting and ultimately shift to a period of being on hold, the market will simply extend further out the curve in a classic duration grab. Fed speak continues to be relevant. We have two things that are very much on the radar. The first will be comments from Powell. The Fed is currently in the process of attempting to communicate that there will be one more 25 basis point rate cut in this initial preemptive series and then presumably a period where monetary policy officials step aside and assess if the small amount of easing has had any positive impact on the economy. Our baseline assumption is that 75 basis points won't be enough in and of itself to turn the tide of any potential recession that might be coming. Point in fact, the most that we could really hope for is the Fed's demonstrated responsiveness to give investors confidence that if there is a more significant downturn, that the Fed stands ready to provide more than enough monetary policy accommodation. We'll also get the FOMC minutes, which could provide some clarity on the prospects for a standing repo facility, could also provide some greater insight into just how close the Fed is to pausing, whether that last 25 basis point rate cut we've been expecting in 2019 is even on the table. If we look at what is being priced in the Fed Fund's futures market, that seems to be an inevitability at this point. And that's not necessarily because the FOMC would like to do it and is 
signaling to the market that they're willing to go that last quarter point, but rather because the market is pushing for it. And the Fed, frankly, hasn't provided the amount of counter argument that we would anticipate if they were in fact done at 50 basis points. Let us not forget, we also have a series of auctions. We have threes, tens, and thirties. With yields effectively in the middle of the recent range, our expectations are for another solid takedown of supply. It is notable that the market and investors to a large extent have become habituated to the record size coupon auctions. And while there has been, arguably, some residual impact on the very front end of the curve from the glut of collateral that has been floating around the repo market, the fact that 10-year yields are trading where they are is a testament to the notion that it really is the global inflation and growth macro influences that set the outright level of 10 and 30 year yields in this environment. And as always, the front of the curve is beholden to monetary policy expectations. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. As we conclude our 39th episode, will take this opportunity to revel in being on the right side of the hill for one last moment. And it's gone. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. 
Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.